Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Bill Holleran. We're at the Holleran Tasting Room in Dundee. It's July 7th, 2022. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to do it. And thank you for the amazing vineyard tour before the interview. That was awesome. Um, first question to get you started is why wine? Well, I, yeah, I started uh, with wine on the consumption side like most people do and um, decided to move to Oregon in uh, 1998 uh, for lifestyle reasons, not to get in the business. And, uh, a brief version of, of the story is that uh, I had I had to buy some land to avoid paying tax on some properties I was selling on the East Coast, and uh, not intending to buy vineyards, but land that could become a vineyard later on when I would retire. And, um, one thing led to another. One of the pieces of property had a vineyard on it. Uh, met a young guy who wanted to work with it, didn't have a place to make wine, and we had a horse barn, uh, which is where we originally were living up in the Stafford area, actually a Westland address. And uh, before I knew it, I was in the wine business. Uh, while working uh, during the day, I had started a software company in 95, and which I ran until 2013. So my first 15 years in the business uh, was evenings and weekends. So let's talk about a little bit before, kind of before wine, before Oregon. Tell us about uh, upbringing, where you were born and grew up, and what you're doing before Oregon. Uh, born in Washington, D.C. Uh, grew up uh, mostly in New Jersey, a little bit in Kansas City. I went back to D.C. to go to university and stayed there for quite a while. I was in uh, the technology business, started when we were punching cards uh, in the early 70s, and uh, ended up in the mutual fund industry. And then around 1991, realized that I had had enough of the corporate world. And without any future plan at all about what to do, I just quit. And uh, met my wife, which was great. Uh, played in a really bad bar band, which was also wonderful. Um, did a lot of volunteer work for children's charities, um, and life was going great, and then I ended up starting another business as a favor for a friend of mine, uh, which turned into a company I ran for about 18 years. That was 1995. Uh, then our first son came along, and we decided we wanted him to grow up somewhere different and special. We were living outside of New York City at the time, which, which we really liked, but it's a tough place for kids. So we took some trips, came to Portland in April of 98, decided to give it a try and uh, came out here and, uh, as I mentioned, as, as part of divesting some properties on the East Coast, ended up with some vineyard land, um, one of them having an old vineyard, and, and that's how we ended up turning a horse barn into a, into a winery. So tell me about that. You mentioned it was kind of an accelerated story from moving here to starting getting in the business. So tell me about the, the decision to kind of follow through into vineyard land and, and then getting into the wine business. Sure. Uh, so yeah, we moved here on uh, January 10th of 1999. Um, quickly found someone to farm the vineyard and just was looking for someone to, to buy the fruit and met a young winemaker who was an assistant uh, down the street here at Cameron. Now I didn't know anybody, so I took out my Yamhill County Wineries map and trying to figure out where, who did I want to sell the fruit to. So I thought, well, I don't want to have to transport it very far. So the closest winery was Cameron. So I went and talked to John. He was very nice, and his assistant, Jay Summers, called me back the next day, and uh, we ended up talking, and uh, I, I just 
had one of those moments where you decide you're going to go in a different direction in life and decide we're going to, going to go for it. So decided to own a handshake deal with Jay, basically partner with him, which lasted uh, about uh, 10 years on a handshake deal. So until he sold his business to uh, Lawson Brothers. So you mentioned you kind of you bought you you were not looking for vineyard land, but you found some vineyard land anyway. Tell me about getting understanding, starting to understand vineyards and what you needed to do to kind of get them going. So very simple philosophy. Um, every time you write a check, you ask a lot of questions. And in this business, there's endless opportunities to write checks. So there's endless opportunities to ask questions. And so if you get good at asking the right questions, you eventually learn. I, I did uh, attend Chemeketa in the evenings. Uh, for a couple semesters, I took courses there in uh, plant physiology, soils, and chemistry of winemaking, just to get some background. Uh, combined with you know being in the middle of a, of a vineyard and winery operation every day for a period of years, you know, if you're paying attention, you know, you can kind of learn what's going on. What were the biggest uh, sort of um, milestones in terms of like understanding, in terms of regrowing the vineyard? Well, the, the, the biggest aha moment for me in the first few years was realizing that it's an intergenerational business. This is not a business that you go into quickly um, thinking that you know, you're going to make a whole bunch of money and it's going to transform your life. Yeah, I think you have to be, I think patience is, is always a virtue, but particularly if you're in the wine growing business. And so I decided early on that for the first 10 years, I was not going to look at a spreadsheet because I just felt like I would make bad decisions. If I did that, you know, it, you just, I just didn't want to be, you know, having worked in the corporate world, you're always focused on being efficient and saving money and maximizing revenue and all those things. And I think in the wine business, if you if you launch with that approach, it, I think that uh, risks heading you in a bad direction. So from the very beginning, my focus was learn as much as I can about growing and just make the very best wine we could make, um, so that uh, we could build our brand. So take us through the initial, you mentioned uh, you, you moved in January and you were doing a harvest in, in the fall. October, take yeah. us through that first year. Um, well, it was, uh, the summer did not look promising. Um, like a lot of Oregon summers don't, they can be you know, quite cool and uncertain. And then the fall came and, and September and October were magical weather and that's what makes a great, a great vintage. So it, it turned out to be a great harvest. In, in hindsight, you know, we made a total of about 1,500 cases between Jay Christopher and Holler and Wines the first year. You know, today we make often over 10,000, so it wasn't a lot, but at the time with just a couple of us and, and you know, lesser equipment than what we have today, <laughs> it was a lot of work. It, it made a big impression on me about uh, how much work the business is. And what about the site itself uh, that you mentioned taking a horse barn and turning it into a winery? Tell us about that process. Well, I also started planting a vineyard there the first year because one thing I like to do with any business I'm in is do something hands-on. I feel you learn the most when you do things with your own hands or your own eyes or whatever it is. Don't just ask people to do things for you. So um, I, I realized after we, the property we were on there is about five acres uh, on what's called Pete's Mountain mm -hmm. and it was south facing. The top elevation was about 700 feet, which is about exactly the same as La Pavillon where we just were and there were volcanic soils. I'm like, I, I think we could plant a vineyard here. So I planted the first three rows the first year and over a period of years ended up planting about an acre, six different clones of Pinot Noir there. Um, and that vineyard is called Mutachin, which is French for pack of dogs. And uh, we still make that wine. Um, we sold the house and the vineyard, but we have a relationship with the new owner, so we're still making the wine. 
it's an awesome site. Uh, if you tell people the wine's from Westland, they'll, no one's going to believe that it's good Pinot Noir. But it's part of the Willamette Valley. It's the very northern tip of the Willamette Valley. And the experience of, of planting that vineyard uh, myself, you know, putting the posts in, pulling the wire, planting the plants, watering them myself. You know, I did all the different things that you do when you're tending a vineyard. So that was, that was a great experience. Mm -hmm. And what about the, 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 the winery? Tell us about the, about the winery. Well, the winery was, uh, was quite interesting. Um, you know, it wasn't optimally laid out to be a winery. It was laid out to be a horse barn. <laughs> so, uh, but we, we made it work and um, much more physical labor for the amount of wine we were making than what we have in, in our newer operation here. You know, the, the barrels were in pyramids. Every barrel has to be hand lifted in place. Obviously, when it's empty, then filled. And when you want to move it out, you have to remove the wine and then take it out by hand. So it was, it was a laborious operation. Um, but I was also, as I mentioned, working during the day. So uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't doing a lot of the work in the winery. I was at harvest. I was full time in the winery, but most of the rest of the year I was working on evenings and weekends to, to do what I could. So tell me about getting to, you mentioned kind of asking a lot of questions, doing a lot of the work yourself. How long did the process take till you started to feel comfortable farming, comfortable making wine, comfortable with that kind of, the, the, even the nomenclature and, and all of that? Well, the nomenclature pretty quickly. Totally comfortable, I think that's still in the future. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, you, you look at the people that have been, you know, their sixth and eighth generation families in Italy and France and Spain. The institutional knowledge that they have is just off the charts. So I, I, think, I think it's important to remain humble as a wine grower and realize that even though you have some knowledge, there's always more that you don't know and can learn. So I think, uh, I think the, the best is, is ahead of us. And I really feel like our best wines are ahead of us, you know, even though I, I'm very proud of the wines that we grow today. So you're, you're credited as kind of the beginning of the garagiste winemaker movement. Uh, I know uh, we've, we've, heard, we've heard that many times. Tell me, tell me about what that means to you as you kind of look back on the early, early days of the winemaking. Um, it just meant you were doing a lot of things by hand. <laughs> and it was hard work. <laughs> but I think that's true of any small winery, you know. I don't know, some writer came up with that, uh, that moniker, I'm not sure you know, how or why, but you know, it, was a, it was a small garage or horse barn and we turned it into a winery. But I think, I, I believe there are other stories like that in the Willamette Valley of other people that turned little barns or garages in, into wine. So I think we were one of many that did that. You know? So take us through the, the growth then over the next few years. What were the next kind of big steps for you? Um, realizing how difficult it is to make money in the business. <laughs> uh, we, we did it uh, backwards. Um, most people who are smart in this business start out you know, with a tasting room uh, and a wine club and selling mostly direct to consumer, or DTC as we call it. Um, where we were located, uh, uh, we couldn't have a tasting room. Uh, we didn't, the zoning didn't permit it. So, um, and I was working at a day job. We weren't big enough to like buy some other place and have some tasting room and staff it. We didn't have enough wine to justify that. So basically, uh, I started out selling everything through distributors, or what we call FOB, uh, which is makes being profitable even more difficult. Um, so that was a learning experience. And so until we opened this tasting room where we're sitting today in December of 2018, we were basically FOB. Mm -hmm. um, so you know we're in 
22 markets in the U.S. plus Canada. Um, and so, and now the business has gradually been shifting as we've had the tasting room here where we have a wine club that's growing. We're selling quite a bit more direct to consumer. Mm -hmm. So we did it kind of backwards. The, the good part about that was uh, the economics of selling FOB are much more difficult. So a bottle of wine, you know, that sells for $25 retail, you know, uh, on a pallet, FOB might sell for 11 or 12. So, you know, if your cost of goods sold is just to make up a number, $10, you know, your margins are, are tough in the FOB business. And so it became clear to me we had to get volume up higher. So I, I did that starting around 07, 08, 09. We increased volume. Um, so, but the flip side of that is now that we, so our retail prices were lower because to be successful in the FOB business, you have to have uh, really good wine, but you also have to have really good prices because what a consumer will pay for a bottle of wine overlooking the vineyard, sitting in the tasting room is different than what they'll pay walking into a wine shop in downtown Chicago with 50 bottles in front of them. All sorts of choices, it's a very different business. So, um, you know, we were, we were successful doing what we did and we had to build our cost structure around that, mm -hmm. uh, making, being able to be profitable at some level, FOB. So when we uh, started a wine club or whatever, you know, we didn't change our prices. So as a result, you know, our prices are lower than perhaps uh, many other similarly positioned wineries in the valley. So you gave us a, a nice overview of the, both of these two vineyards here. Tell me about um, the sort of the progress of uh, the, the first vineyard and then, and then and the ones you've added since. So La Chenet, we started planting in 2001. That's in the Ola Hills. That's our largest site. It's originally was 74 acres and we added 30 acres to the south. So it's 104 acres. And so that's about 27 acres planted right now out of that. That's all I can afford to plant. And um, very different styles of wine because of the impact of the Venduzer, much cooler evenings. So hot days, very cold nights, holds the acid. Um, and so we've basically been gradually planting and adding that. Um, and then in, um, I guess it was around 2013 when we decided uh, we wanted to move out of where we were, where the horse barn was, and we'd added a second barn there. But we did, you know, our son was out of high school, it was time to downsize. And um, we started looking for a place to build a new winery, and that's when we came upon where we are today here, Anna Vineyard, had just come on the market. And it's right across the street from La Pavia, and we could farm it with the same equipment, and it had a spot where we could build a winery. So uh, it seemed like a logical, logical place to move to. So, so we acquired this, started farming it in 2014, started uh, designing and building the winery, which we moved to in 2016. And give us a little bit of the rundown on the history of both this vineyard and La, La Pavillon. So um, both planted in the early 1970s. Um, this was, I guess, one of the hotbeds of vineyard development in this area. You had uh, Marsh Red Barn right next door, uh, Erath Prince Hill right up there. Um, you know, this is really where a lot of the early plantings were. The vineyard was originally, the La Pavillon was originally part of a vineyard called Dundee Hills Vineyard, owned by Dr. John and Sally Bauer. And uh, when Dr. Bauer passed away in 97, 98, it was split in two. We bought the top part, which we renamed La Pavillon for the little gazebo there. And Neil Goldschmidt bought the bottom part. And he subsequently sold it to, uh, to Bill and Donna, who owned Winderley. 
And Anna was part of Weber Vineyard until 2002, and it was sold to Andy Humphrey, who was a vineyard manager. He farmed it for about 12 years and then sold it to me. And you talk us through kind of the, the sort of the unique different the differences between the vineyards, but I'm curious from your perspective, um, what does each kind of bring to what you're trying to sort of put into the bottle? What do, what do each vineyard bring to your wine portfolio? Well, the Pavillon with the higher elevation is uh, just beautifully elegant. And, and I, sh I should step back and say, you know, our winemaking philosophy and what we try and do is uh, what I would describe as old, more old world style. We're not trying to make point score wines or big extracted wines, so the Pavillon really plays right into that. Um, high elevation, uh, you know, it's beautiful Dundee Hills fruit, uh, you know, red cherry, uh, but an earthy component to it, particularly I think from the Pomard clone. Uh, whereas Anna, even though similar vine age, just being a couple hundred feet lower in elevation, uh, definitely makes a, a bigger framed Pinot Noir. So it's, it's, the customers always enjoy coming here when they can taste both wines side by side and see what an amazing difference from two vineyards. Same vintage, same farming, same winemaking, planted roughly the same time and you taste the wines, it's like, oh my gosh, it's, it's amazing what little subtle differences mm -hmm. uh, can, can make such a large uh, variance in the, in the wine. So as you look back in the kind of the, the Holleran vineyard and winery growth, what are some of the favorite moments that you look back on? Every year the last day of harvest is <laughs> 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 fun, you know. Actually, I really enjoyed being now in this building because, um, you know, we have a little kitchen here where I can cook. And so uh, one of, uh, in addition to hauling the fruit, I drive the truck and haul the fruit from the old hills up to here. Uh, I also cook lunch most days for our winery, for the harvest crew that's working here. And, uh, and that's really fun. That, that's really, I like to be hands-on, like I mentioned before, if, if I found myself just looking at spreadsheets in this business, I would have missed the mark. You know, I, I wanted to be in a business where I could actually do something hands-on. So, so whether it's driving a truck or cooking lunch for the crew, those are the kind of things I, I enjoy. What about like the sort of, you mentioned going to Chemeketa early on and, and being very hands-on. What have you learned about vineyard practices, farming practices? How have, that, how have those changed in the time you've been here? Uh, well, I've learned a little bit out of a lot to learn, you know. Um, I'm fortunate to have an amazing vineyard manager, Vicente Mora, uh, who's been with us since 2012. And he has a wealth of knowledge. He's been tending vines since he was a teenager down in California. He has a, a degree from Chemeketa. Um, Mark Lagasse, our winemaker, also has, a, in addition to an undergraduate degree in biology, has a degree in uh, winemaking and viticulture from Chemeketa. So I lean on them a lot for a lot of the specifics. It, it's just the kind of business where, you know, you have, to, you have to get the right, like any business, you have to get the right people. Mm -hmm. And we're fortunate to have an amazing team of folks who have been with us for quite a while. And you farmed organic from the start. Right. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, it's pretty simple. It just seemed obvious to me that you'd want to, you know, farm your your grapes the same way you want your your uh, peaches and pears and apples farmed that you eat at home, you know. <laughs> so, um, and you know, it, it costs a little bit more, but it's not that much. And um, you know, a lot of our customers when they have our wines, you know, talk about you know, there's a certain quality to it, and I I identify it as a 
they have a certain purity of flavor. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a combination of organic farming and also not trying to extract too much, not trying to make bigger wines, not trying to do you know, long pre-macerations. You know, the more you extract, the more bitterness you get. The more chemicals you use, the more bitterness you get. So you know, we really value purity of flavor and elegance. You know. And from organic, you also went biodynamic in the early 2000s? 2006, yeah. And what prompted that? Uh, just seeing some weakness in our old vineyard, old vines at Le Pavillon, and just from the research I had done of what people do with old vineyards in Burgundy, uh, biodynamics was, I mean, some of the very best vineyards were farming biodynamics. So, I mean, that, that's pretty simple. <laughs> I mean, it's worth at least trying. And then once, once we tried it, it was obvious that the vineyard responded to it. So uh, we were guided on our biodynamic spiritual journey and, and still are to some extent by uh, Philippe Armagnier who's a consultant based out of California who grew up in Chateauneuf de Pop, uh, farming at Domaine de Marcou. And he and his wife are big proponents of biodynamic farming. So we, we lean on Philippe for his expertise every year. Were there any um, surprises in either the methodology of biodynamics or the results? Well, you know, a lot of people look at biodynamics and try and say, you know, it's a cow horn or it's this or that, and, and, and they try and poo-poo it just based on kind of surface appeal. Mm -hmm. And I take a bit of a different approach. I, I just try and look at the end results mm -hmm. and try and not, you know, microscopically manage each little detail of it of, of what is this exactly doing. You know, I, I, I guess I'm trusting enough of the process based on how many people have been doing it and the results they're getting. So I, I tend to be, I t take a, a more holistic and simpler approach uh, to, to biodynamics. And, and organic is just, it's just simple. I and mean, if you look at what Roundup does or glyphosate, you know, to the soil, if you look at soil that's had glyphosate sprayed on it for years and years and years, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard on the soil. How, when you, uh, when you went biodynamic, how long to see results? About 18 months, and it was pretty significant. Mm -hmm. yeah. So since you opened up the space here, as you mentioned, that's changed kind of the business model, that's changed uh, the production. So how has production changed uh, and uh, what kind of, what, what do you have uh, in mind for the future? Well, um, I think we'll just gradually see the business shift. I mean, I think we'll always be in the business of selling through distributors. Um, you know, we have great relationships we've developed, most of them on the East Coast. Uh, we sell a lot of wine somewhere between uh, Georgia and Maine. And um, so I, I think that'll continue. Um, but, you know, there are economic advantages of selling direct to consumers. So um, I think we'll continue to grow that aspect of the business. At this point, you know, we don't have to do a whole lot to keep the distributor business clicking along. So the main thing is, my main focus in the last couple of years has been, uh, you know, growing the, the DTC business. <laughs> And was that a specific? Uh, I'm curious about the, the challenge of that. There's a lot of there's a lot of tasting rooms over here. Was yeah. it a, was it a challenge to get another one going? Um, I guess in, in some ways, yes. I mean, if we had done this um, 15 or 20 years ago, would it have grown faster? Probably, you know. Um, but you know, fortunately, we have a way to sell our wine. You know, we don't rely on DTC, right? So. Um, as I mentioned before, the fact that we built our whole cost structure around being able to sell at the FOB prices, which are much lower, mm -hmm. 
um, and which means our retail prices are lower. Now, that's a kind of a double-edged sword. There are some consumers that look at the retail price and infer quality from price point. Oh, this wine costs $80, it must be amazing. Great, okay. I think our, our top single vineyard Pinot Noir sell for $45, um, which other wineries for that same wine would probably charge $80 or $100, you know, because they don't have 50-year-old vines the way we do. <laughs> so I, I feel like, you know, we're, I feel like our wines way over deliver, and actually our customers tell us that all the time. Mm. You know, they'll come in here and say, hey, I've, I've, I've been around and you know, these wines are amazing and your prices are, how, how come your prices are 30 to 50% lower than everybody else, you know? And I'll, I'll tell them the truth, I'll tell them the, the history of it, and I can't, I can't see just raising the prices just because some other winery has, has a high price. And, it, and I have no, uh, I mean, if that's what they can do and they said that's more power to them, I have no issue with anybody else charging what they want to charge. It's just not what we're going to do, mm -hmm. you know. Let's talk about uh, 2020 a little bit. Obviously, a variety of challenges that year. Uh, tell us. About <laughs> we, yeah, we thought we thought we'd seen it all. Yeah. Then the pandemic hit, and then the and then the smoke came. Yeah. So t <laughs> tell us about that year from your perspective and the the kind of decisions and and uh, challenges specific to that year. We had to find a new therapist, you know, <laughs> who could who could deal with greater levels of depression. You know, in all seriousness. Uh, uh, I, I take a pretty level approach to most things. I, um, from having been in the corporate world, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs, and so you get used to things happening, and you kind of learn to roll with it. You know, so I just I just try and focus on okay, what are the best decisions we can make at the moment. So we did we did the best we could. Um, interestingly, the so we we bottle under two different labels: the Holler and label, and another second label called Stafford Hill. Stafford Hill is our second label. So all the Pinot Noir in 2020 ended up on the Stafford Hill label, and we uh, we brought in a, a reverse osmosis machine. We had never used this particular technology before that is was geared towards removing smoke taint. And even before we treated it, there really wasn't much. We had a little bit, but the machine was amazing, and it really cleaned it up. Mm -hmm. So we've had no problems at all selling the wine. Uh, obviously, all at Stafford Hill, it's a lower price point. It's not as much revenue, but but you know you're getting your farming costs back, so I feel like it worked out okay. And the whites, we really didn't see a big impact in the whites because you press it off the skins before you ferment it, and most of the taint is in the skins, not not all of it, but most of it. Now that all those wines, we encourage people to drink on the younger side because those there are bound form a form of a smoke taint that can evolve in the bottle later on. So, but basically, we feel like we, you know, we we got we got past it. You know, we we dodged the bullet combination of we made the wine a little differently to emphasize a bigger fruit profile so that if there was smoke taint it wouldn't be as obvious mm -hmm. and then the reverse osmosis technology uh, worked amazing mm -hmm. it was really wonderful as the the har that harvest as the smoke was kind of rolling in here what was the what was your sort of decision making process and what were you kind of thinking you might be able to do uh, well, we did um, press off more of it to make a Pinot Noir Blanc. Um, we made, I think, about 600 cases of Pinot Noir Blanc. Uh, but there's only so much Pinot Noir Blanc you can sell, you know. <laughs> so, uh, so we we did that. Um, but you know, it was really a question of when to pick. There were there were some vineyards that were sending pickers out in the smoke to pick, and we wouldn't do it. And we didn't want any of our any of our crew going out there in those conditions. So we just had to wait till it went away, and then pick. You know, 
And then at that point, it really became like a normal harvest. I mean, probably at that point, the COVID protocols were more bothersome than the smoke, you know, because that was for also the first year of the pandemic. Uh, with the reverse osmosis machine, what what caused you to go that route? Uh, you know, our winemaking team had had researched it um, and uh, you know felt it was it was worth a try. There, there are some people that didn't like it and said it didn't work or whatever, but uh, it it just seemed like you know hopefully we don't get more vintages like that. But it's hard to believe we won't at some point, mm -hmm. whether it's three years from now, ten years from now, twenty years from now. I mean more wildfires in the West just seems like the handwriting's on the wall. It's hard to believe that there won't be more. So, so we also wanted to, um, if nothing else, learn what we could mm -hmm. for the future. Mm -hmm. And if you don't try stuff, you just don't know, you know. And the economics of it are that if you, know, if you pay to bring in the machine, it's always more efficient to do more with it rather than less. So we just, we just basically blended all of our Pinot Noir together because it was it's easy. It was difficult to treat an individual a lot. It's hard to get the machine going. You, there's, you'll spend 50 or 80 gallons just kind of getting it going. So we basically said, okay, we're going to make all second label Pinot Noir. We put it all in and treated it all, and it came out great. Uh, we've sold about. I was just looking at this. We've sold about 85 percent of it. We're just about sold out of our 2020 Pinot Noir. So it's impressive. Yeah. Uh, so I want to back up a bit to the to your kind of entry to Oregon. You mentioned you came to Oregon without necessarily thinking about getting into wine. Uh, as you as you bought a vineyard and started kind of down that path, what were your initial impressions of the Oregon wine industry and, and of the people here making wine? Fabulous. Uh, everyone was so helpful, um, helpful with their time, expertise. Um, yeah, it was it was amazing. Um, and I I mean I. You know, I've worked having come from you know more of a corporate world, you know, which is a little a little more challenging. You know, it was very pleasant. You know, so I certainly like that aspect of it. And and I just in the early years just look forward to being able to be full time in it because it's it was very difficult the first 15 years doing it just evenings and weekends. And what are the changes you've seen in the industry since you've been a part of it? Um, you know, just more and more people coming into it and more and more plantings. Yet, when you look around, um, less so in the Dundee Hills, but particularly in the Ola Hills and other areas, there's still so much land to be planted. Um, more varietals being planted. You know, we started experimenting with Tempranillo in 2002. Uh, last fall, we just planted Cabernet Franc. Um, you know, so we have learned that, you know, in the, if you have a tasting room, you know, you want to have a lot of options for people. Selling on a pallet, you know, to a distributor on the East Coast, not so much. You know, they're interested in one or two things. They want Pinot Noir, maybe Chardonnay, you know, maybe some Riesling. So, um, yeah, I think, I, I think Oregon's, and, and of course the climate is changing here. So, you know, certainly, I believe Pinot Noir will always be, the, you know, the most important red wine here. But I think there's a lot of room for uh, plenty more of other varietals. Uh, both red and white. We grow Sauvignon Blanc now, and it's doing amazing. We just planted more of that last fall too, because we can't keep that in stock. So, um, you know, and if, so if you look at it, so uh, Sauvignon Blanc, Cabernet Franc, maybe somewhat akin to the Loire Valley, you know, which is kind of central France. You know, so may, maybe uh, that's that's a, a template in terms of what other varietals we might want to do here. 
Well, on that note, uh, what do you kind of foresee for the industry as you look ahead? Uh, you know, I think with, with the increasing costs of what's going on now, it certainly makes it tougher and tougher to just be a grower. Um, so it's hard to say um, how that'll shake out. I mean, I think, I think a lot of the people that just grow and sell their fruit, you know, it's a labor of love. Mm -hmm. You know, they're, they're not, most of them aren't doing, they're not relying on that to put food on the table. So, uh, I mean, I, I think that's the Oregon spirit. I mean, that's what, that's what people here like to do. You know, they, they want to have their 10 or 20 or 30 acres of land. They want to farm. They're going to grow wine grapes, and as long as they can probably break even or make a few bucks, I, I don't see that changing. I think that's going to continue, and I think that's that's one of the great things about the business here. It's not like a big corporate type of thing. You know, you see more of that, like in Eastern Washington, you see these massive farms and mm -hmm. irrigated and big, more of a big corporate presence. Here, you have all all these small operators doing amazing things, and I, I think that's great for the creativity of the business too, All different people bringing different ideas. So I, I hope that that doesn't stop. You know, for, for, for us, I don't, we don't want to be huge, but we want to continue to innovate. And that's why we're, you know, we're planting new varietals and doing new things. Mm -hmm. And we just want to make the best wine we, we can make and grow the best wine we can make and, uh, and be a great place for people to work. We're very proud of the fact that all of our all of our employees, both in the winery and in the vineyard, who are full-time, are on company paid at medical and dental. That's very important to us. Anything else uh, in the future for you or for the brand here that you're excited about? Well, just get, get ready for the next harvest, because <laughs> it's always coming. <laughs> We're expanding the tasting room because, you know, because of our focus on DTC. Mm -hmm. you know. uh, so we're in the process of doing that. We've had to take the project in-house because it was too expensive to do it, so I'm now acting as general contractor. <laughs> but this is what you have to do, you know. <laughs> Just another hat to wear. Just another hat to wear, yeah, part of the business. Well, since we have you here in 2022 uh, and you gave us a nice show of the vineyard, um, tell us about sort of the effects of early weather 2022 and, and what this year is looking like. Well, definitely the crop was affected in some blocks and some vineyards, not, not in others. It's really variable. Uh, we have seen it more in Dundee than in the Ola Hills. I think we have fruit out there. I think some of the blocks will be relatively small crops, but there will be a crop. Um, but also very, very late because after the frost, we had the cold, very cold, very rainy weather for about another month. So recently, typical start date for picking has been around September 1 to September 5th. This year, I think you're looking at October 10th to October 15th to start. So the most similar recent year was 2011, where we didn't pick a grape before October 22nd. So it's not unprecedented. Uh, we can do it. It's going to make for a compressed harvest at the end, where a lot of stuff's going to come in very, very quickly. So we'll just have to gear up for that. Now, we have one vineyard that we do get some fruit from that was not affected at all. That'll probably come in late September. So it's going to be kind of interesting. We'll have a harvest will start, and then not much going on, and then boom, there'll be like a second chapter two. So it. It's just the nature of this business. You know, every year is a little different. All right. That's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover? No, I think, I think you hit it well. I think what you guys are doing is uh, will be a wonderful service for the future for people to pick up in 50 or 100 years and say, oh, my gosh, look at what was happening. <laughs> that, would be a, that would be awesome. We hope so, too. Uh, thank you so much for your time, for your hospitality, for your amazing uh, tour of the vineyard. and. Uh, 
Will I let you off the hook? Happy to do it. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.